back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, Why More is Less. The Paradox of Choice seems to come up in a hell of a lot of books. It's like one core idea that lots and lots and lots of other books that we've reviewed have talked about. I was actually listening back to our old episodes and there were so many times where we were like, oh yeah, The Paradox of Choice, we'll do that one day. So mm-hmm. we're, we're finally doing it. I think it was you every time. I was never- <laughs> every time, all me. <laughs> you were super excited to get into this. So we finally landed on The Paradox of Choice by Big Barry. It all comes down to this time when he was a bit younger. He went to the store and was looking to buy a new pair of jeans. Basically, he walked into the store and said, I'm after a 32 waist and a 28 leg, it seems like he must be a small bloke. Yeah, thin, thin, lean man. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, the, the store person said, well, how do you want it? Do you want them stonewashed, acid washed, distressed, torn? Do you want zip fly or button fly? Do you want them faded or regular? Do you want them slim fit, easy fit, relaxed fit? Do you want them straight leg, skinny leg, extra baggy? There was just so many choices. He just wanted regular, normal old jeans. Yeah, Bass just wanted some jeans. And the jeans he ended up buying, they turned out to be pretty good, but he didn't want to turn that simple errand of going to buy a pair of jeans into a long day exercise, which turned out to be very difficult on the brain and the cognitive load of it. So obviously buying jeans is just a very small trivial matter, but it's indicative, I guess, of a whole lot of uh, greater themes around us in the world today. When we have no choice, it becomes very restrictive and unbearable. We don't like to feel constrained that we don't have any options. So when choice increases, we feel a sense of autonomy, control, liberation. This variety brings us this feeling of power and positivity. But, and this is the big but, is that if the number of choices keeps growing more and more, there are actually negative aspects that come with having too many choices. The choice no longer liberates us, it debilitates us. Think about the first time you went to the supermarket. You could be totally overwhelmed. As you go from aisle to aisle, there's seemingly unlimited options to choose from. Within each of these options and categories, there's another huge number of brands to choose from that in different varieties and styles. For example, there's 85 varieties of brands of crackers. Some have sodium, some don't, some are fat-free, some are not. Some have big boxes, small boxes, normal size, bite size, ranging from mundane, exotic in flavors, There's 285 varieties of cookies. Within Choc Chip alone, there's 21 options. I don't know what supermarket Barry's been to. (laughs) 21 different varieties of Choc Chips. I'd say at least 21. There's, you know, 13 different types of sports drinks, 65 different types of box drinks for your kids' lunchboxes. There's 85 brands and flavors of fruit juices, 75 different iced teas. If you go down the snack aisle, there's 95 different options. You could have pretzels, Pringles, nuts, chips. Then within chips, you got corn chips, potato chips. Uh, within potato chips, you got thin cut, crinkle cut. We haven't even started talking about the flavors yet. Yeah, 100%. And say, even when you're selecting for your university and what's your vocation going to be, the liberal arts colleges celebrate freedom and choice above all else. And because of this, the modern university, it's like a intellectual shopping mall. So same kind of theme. There's no fixed curriculum. It's all about you can just choose your own adventure and choose your own pathway. It sounds pretty good. Even at Harvard, he talked about how they changed their structure to form this core curriculum. You had to pick at least one subject from seven different broad areas and there was 220 different subjects to choose from. There's 32 different foreign culture subjects, 44 historical studies, 58 different literature and arts, 15 different moral reasonings. There's just so many choices to choose from when you're taking up a university degree. If you look at entertainment... So when our parents were younger in Australia, you had 7, 9, 10, ABC and that was it. You get home and chuck the TV on and it's one of them. Today, it's very different. You got Netflix, Hulu, Stan, CBS, Disney, RedTube, Apple TV. 
<laughs> and all the other stuff too. <laughs> so many different choices today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Had to drop a sneaky one in there, didn't I? Yeah, good one. And then he talks about uh, savings. Uh, you know, when uh, pensions were just starting up, when Barry started out, he had 14 different options. Some of the employees were rallying that there wasn't enough choice within these 14 different options. So the union lobbied the university. They expanded that to 155 different options to choose from of pension choices. And then there was 156th option, which was if you couldn't find one of the 155, then you just build your own. So it's basically an unlimited amount of choices you can choose from. So hopefully we've given you a sense of the overwhelm that is all around us. There is just so many choices everywhere that we have to make small decisions every single day and they all add up and add up over time. And that's what the book is about. In a world of so many choices, how do we actually choose and how do we avoid the suffering that comes from too much choice? Throughout the book, Barry's got loads of studies. One which he's most renowned for, which is very famous, is all about jams. So it involves a gourmet food store in a real upscale neighborhood where staff would often set up all these stalls to give out free samples of new products. And the research is set up displays featuring a line of exotic, high-quality jams. So customers could try samples and then they were given a coupon for a $1 discount if they wanted to buy the jam. Okay, so the first group, they were given six varieties of this exotic jam. The second group, they were given 24 varieties of this exotic jam. So after they were offered 6 and 24 respectively, they were both offered to purchase out of the full set of 24 and then they wanted to see what both groups did. Turns out, group 1, the first one who only had 6 to choose from, 30% of them ended up buying the jam and the second group who had a shitload of choices, they had 24 to choose from, only 3% brought the jam. Mate, that's one-tenth of the other group. It is and you'd think that the one group that they could taste all of them before choosing which one to buy. I don't know. I guess you'd assume that they will buy more because they've got more options. They'd probably be more inclined to pick one of the ones that they really liked. But they found that with too many choice, it just became overwhelming. And that when we were actually restricted in how many we could choose from, we are more likely to make that purchase decision in the end. I've experienced something very relevant recently. I've been going to Laneway Greens every now and then for a long time. Then they became under new management and... It used to be the, the situation where you have eight different options and they put all the choice to have the salmon bulgogi and, and had 10 things mixed into it and it was real easy going there, right, that's what I feel like today. And then they changed it to you have to eight different steps and each single step you have to choose which one you want from it. I only went there once and I didn't go back until they changed it back to the old way. <laughs> but it's just the exact same thing, right, where that moment where I had to have too much choice really made my lunchtime shit ass. And I just didn't go back. Yeah, it's interesting that you'd think they probably thought, okay, we've got these six menu items, but let's expand it. Now you've got eight steps and within each of those eight steps, there's four different options. So you've got so much choice, so much freedom, you can build your own meal, but it just becomes overwhelming. It becomes too hard to choose. You've got too many options to sift through. You probably second guess yourself a bit. When you get down to the end and you're choosing the honey mustard sauce or the barbecue sauce, you probably you pick the barbecue and then you, as you're eating it, you wish you had gone for that honey mustard. So your experience of the meal has gone down as well because you've had too many choices and too many different options. So how do we choose? Barry says that we go through a pretty typical process for choosing that all of us follow loosely without even realizing So the first step is we figure out our goals, what do we want to achieve, and then we rank the importance of each of those goals relative to each other. The second step, 
We're finding out what options are available to us and we're weighing up how likely is each of those options to meet our goals. So then we eventually pick one of the options. And then step three happens after we choose. We sort of calibrate ourselves afterwards. Was it a good choice or not? Was our goal correct or not? And we sort of recalibrate for the next time that we have to choose. So this is the process we go through. But Barry says it, it really doesn't work and it's really stuffed up from the very first step because our goals that we think we know so well we're actually pretty useless at working out what our goals actually are. Yeah, we're quite useless in a lot of ways and we're quite irrational if you've, and you'd be well aware of this if you've been listening for a while by now. And one of the ways it really doesn't work is in knowing your goals. You think, what do I want? It sounds like a pretty straightforward question that you're probably listening right now thinking, yeah, I know the answer to that and I know what I bloody want. But if you dig below the surface, you'll see that accurately anticipating what will make us feel happy in the future, that's bloody difficult. So this idea of utility, things that you know, we derive benefit from, we feel happy, Barry says there's three different types of utilities. So there's experienced utility. So that's like when you're, you know, you're eating a meal at a restaurant, you listen to a song, you're watching a movie. The experienced utility is that feeling of whether you like it or not in the moment. You've also got your expected utility. So your mate tells you about the, the movie and you've got this expectation of what it's going to be. And then that's a different form of utility also. And it obviously influences your choices in a very big way. If you think this movie is going to be great, then you're more likely to go and see it. And then you've got remembered utility. So that's after the fact when you're looking back to recalibrate for next time. How well do you remember the utility that you had at the time? So when you look back in time, did you enjoy it or not? So unfortunately, the question, what do I want, isn't easy because these three things don't line up well. Your expectation of what you're going to feel what you actually feel when you're there and then what you look back and you actually feel. They're not very aligned. And that's what really stuffs us up. Basically, we're making choices based on our expected utility, how we think we're going to feel doing it and then we calibrate those choices based on our remembered utility but unfortunately, these are almost never the same as our experienced utility. And one of the big studies he talks about is uh, participants in a study that had to listen to this series of loud, unpleasant noises and the first, I don't know why, why would you sign yourself up for this study, but mm, the first one was... 50 bucks. There must have been 50 <laughs> bucks involved or something. The first one, you get eight seconds of loud, blasting, unpleasant noise, and then it ends. And then the second one, you cop eight seconds of this exact same loud, blasting noise, but then you get an additional eight seconds at the end of like pretty loud, pretty blasting noise, but not as painful as the first lot. So... Afterwards, the researcher said, oh, you've got to listen to one of these again, either the first one or the second one. Objectively, the second one was worse. It was the exact same eight seconds of blasting as the first one, but then you cop an additional eight seconds of noise at the end. So you'd think that everyone would just go for the first one, but of course, our remembered utility says, actually, the second one wasn't that bad. It sort of mm. trailed off a bit to the end. It was a bit more pleasant towards the end, so I'll cop the second one instead. Yeah, exactly. The remembering self remembers the peak and the end. I think we've dropped the example if you're out at a date and if you want the remembering self to get the most utility out of it, then what you do is you have a real high peak in the middle. You buy the most expensive cocktail at the bar during the middle and then you also have a really good end. You open the door for her and you're an absolute gentleman or whatever it takes for that partner to feel they've had a great time and that's the average and that's irrationally how they'll remember it. They won't remember that moment by moment mm. pleasantry they had from the, the experience of the whole date. So it's just those two moments you really got to engineer properly. So if you apply this peak and rule to those two sounds, uh, they've got the exact same peak in that the, that painful eight seconds. But the first one it ended high, so it's still a high average. The second one ended not as bad, so it averages down. So using that peak end rule, uh, we irrationally think 
that the second one was more pleasant to listen to. So if you think back to that two groups in the jam study, you know, after the study, they won't remember correctly about what they experienced. Yeah, because we've got these two different cells, the remembering self and the experiencing self, we can't correctly answer what do I want and we choose irrationally because of this. If you think about all of us today, we've got more choice than ever before. We've got more freedom, more autonomy, but we really don't seem to be benefiting from it all psychologically. This is what Barry's been telling us about today. So what choice really reflects is the value that we really want, which is freedom. And every choice we make is a testament to our autonomy and this value that we have and to our sense of self-determination. So we think increased choice means increased freedom, which means increased happiness and increased utility. But if you look at all the research, it shows that people in rich countries are happier than in poor countries. So money matters and this increased choice where you can get the universal needs is a really big thing, but not as much as you'd think. It reaches a threshold where further increases in national wealth have smaller effects on happiness overall. So you might need that shelter, but you don't really need that extra screening room with your indoor basketball court and your six-car garage. You might need that pair of jeans, but you don't need that extra skinny pair cotton source from your African farmlands and whatnot. So why do we not improve in happiness with all these extra choices? So part of this downside of all this extra abundance of choice is that each new option adds an extra list of trade-offs. So yes, we do need food, but maybe we don't need the Chilean sea bass or the the Kobe beef that's been massaged by the Japanese farmers. There are all, that's a real thing. Really? Yeah. Jesus. It sounds delicious. Uh, but it sounds so, brutal. Well, the massage as it's been slaughtered? No, I think just as they grow up, just, okay. they're pretty fat though. Fat cows are not healthy, but they get massaged. Uh, but uh, they're like, there's all these different trade-offs. So now, rather than just choosing between um, steak or sea bass, now within each of those, you've got all these extra choices. When we're making our decisions, it all comes down to opportunity cost. I mean, if Michelle, if she chooses job A, what's she leaving on the table in terms of job B or what might be in the new city and everything like that? And economists point out that the quality of any decision cannot be assessed in isolation from all these alternatives. There's no really absolute quality. There's only just relative quality. So we can only just, in every choice we make, we can only just compare it to other things. And the more things we've got to compare it to, the more uh, opportunity cost there is in every one of our decisions. So we get to factor in all these additional costs with every new decision that actually comes onto the table. That's it. So making one choice means that we're foregoing something else and that's where the opportunity cost comes in. So another real world example might be you're you're choosing how to spend a night out with your romantic partner. Uh, One option could be spending your four hours where you travel into the city, sit down at an expensive restaurant and have a fancy dinner. One might be you have a quick takeaway dinner at a local restaurant and then you go to see a movie. One might be you go to a pub and watch a band play and have a, a chicken parma as you're there. Or one might be you cook dinner at home and have a few friends over. And so there are all these different options in front of you that mean each option you're doing, you're not only uh, spending the dollars on the meal and you're not only spending the time in the activity you're doing, the additional cost is also foregoing all of the other options that you could have chosen instead. So one real world example of this might be how do you spend a Saturday night with your romantic partner? So you've got four hours. One could be you travel for an hour into the city to go to an expensive sit-down fancy restaurant dinner 
One might be rather than traveling and maybe just get a quick local dinner and then go and see a movie during that time. One might be you go and watch a band play at the pub and have a, have a meal there. One might be you cook dinner at home and have a few friends over. So now the costs of the choice that you make is not just the dollars spent on the dinner and not just the time spent watching the movie or, or watching the band. The additional costs that factor in here is all of the additional options that you didn't choose instead. Whatever you choose to do when you're experiencing that, there's always going to be the costs of what you didn't do that night. If you had this automatic decision to go and watch the band play at the pub every Thursday night, then you're never going to have these opportunity costs that are actually going to arise. So economists point out that the quality of any decision cannot be assessed in isolation from its alternatives. There is no absolute quality as such. There's just relative quality compared to other things. So say if you ended up choosing to watch the band play at the pub, but you had all these additional options that you had on the table before that night, you'll be comparing that night to all of the other things that you could have done. And if you went the other route and if you just had date night every Thursday where you automatically watch the band play at the pub, then you're not really weighing it up against all these other costs. As all your economists say, it's all about relative quality, not absolute quality. So opportunity costs are one thing that weigh on our mind when we make a choice, we're always thinking about the things that we could have done but didn't choose to. And then the other big way we suffer is regret. And so obviously, if we make a decision and it doesn't turn out quite as well that we'd hoped or if we see an alternative we could have picked that turned out to be better, there's going to be a bit of a bitter taste in our mouth and that regret is going to detract from the satisfaction we get out of our choice. We've got post-decision regret, which is also known as buyer's remorse. So after making the decision, we started to doubt ourselves and have second thoughts, convincing ourselves that the alternatives we rejected will actually turn out better than the ones we chose or to start imagining that there are better options that we haven't yet explored. So in the world of infinite choice that we're in now, when you buy something, you just start creeping and just think, oh shit, I stuffed up here, I should have spent it on something else. One thing that makes regret worse is the idea of omission versus commission. If you do something... Uh, that causes this, it actually makes you feel more regret. So one example, Paul, he owns shares in company A. Last year, he considered switching to company B, but he didn't. He finds out that company B actually went up a thousand bucks more than company A. So he would have made more money if he did switch. There's another bloke, Peter. He owns shares in company B, but actually last year he changed. He sold B and bought A and he found out that if he didn't switch, he would have been a thousand bucks better off. So objectively, Both people are in the exact same position. They own one company. If they had have owned the other company, they would have made more money. But people in the study said that over 90% of them said that the first bloke isn't going to feel as bad. He didn't actually do anything. He could have switched, but he didn't. But the second bloke, he actually sold his shares. If he did nothing, he would have made more money. So this bloke is going to feel a lot more regret because he took an action and it turned out to be wrong. Yeah, there's more pain if you take action and it's a bad decision than if you just go along with the decision you had all along. I mean, it comes up in poker. If you've played Texas Hold'em before, and say the flop comes out and maybe in the next card that you're actually going to win, you might hit that flush on the turn, which is the fourth card that comes out. And then you've got two decisions now. You can either fold or you can call. Most of the time, people who are unskilled and irrational like me and you, Asher, we'll just call because <laughs> we want to see the next card. Yeah. Because we understand if you fold and then that extra heart comes out and it gives you that flush and you make big bucks, there's going to be huge pain because you made the decision to leave that hand. Another thing that gives us more and more regret is how close we got to it. The near misses feel a lot more than if we're way off. 
And so Jerry Seinfeld, he's got a funny gag. Uh, I think it's at the start of the episode called The Gymnast as a, as a Seinfeld aficionado. Hopefully I got that right. But he says that if you, if you think about the Olympics, obviously the gold medal, they're going to be super happy. They won gold. He says the bronze medal is sort of like, well, at least you got something, so you're going to be happy. But he says the silver medal, you're so, you so close to winning gold, but you actually missed out. So that person's actually going to feel the worst. Mm. So out of all the losers, the silver is like the best loser. They could have won gold. They almost did, but maybe they, maybe they slipped. Maybe they uh, missed a starting on by 0.1 of a second. They got so close, but they missed out on winning gold. Yeah, pretty funny. I think slightly better delivery by Jerry. Sorry. <laughs> The Beatty Asho, but I think it's very true, right? Like you'd actually rather bronze and silver under that rationale. <laughs> so, in the world of these infinite choice and increased opportunities that we've got, it's seemingly a very good thing, but we're much more prone to all the opportunity costs about all the things we could have done, than also the regret, understanding that we could have done a different decision and a different path would have led it to a better outcome. Okay, so as we've spoken about so far, the world is full of choices and there's seemingly infinite choices and they're only increasing. We think that more choice is good, but after a certain point, more choice actually makes us suffer. And so, what can we do about it? Barry, he's got three suggestions here as to actions we can take that will reduce our suffering and make us all better choosers. The first thing you can do is really just make rules to automate your decisions as much as you can. If buckling your seatbelt is a rule, you're always going to buckle up and you don't have to make the decision. And then, he didn't write this, but take it a step further. If you didn't buckle and then you crash, you're not going to have that regret <laughs> of not having your, having your seatbelt buckled as well, won't you? Yeah, that's true. He calls it choosing when to choose or making these second order decisions. So, you, if you create one rule, rather than every time you jump in the car, you think, oh, am I... Am I going on a 30-second trip just down to the milk bud down the road? Do I have to put my seatbelt on or not? Or, okay, hang on, I'm doing a six-hour interstate trip to the next city. Yeah, I should buckle up. If you just have a rule, you don't have to make that decision anymore. So, you basically choose once. Once you set this rule, it eliminates a whole bunch of future decisions that you have to make. I do this all the time. If Google Maps tells me to go all these little back streets and make all these decisions as you go to shave off three minutes off your trip... I'll just drive down Beach Road and uh, just do it that way and just cop the cost of the five-minute loss, but you're really going to save all the pain. Another way we can reduce our suffering from too much choice is making our choices and making our decisions non-reversible. So, rather than having the option to change your mind, just close the door on it. It's, uh, I guess, counterintuitive. You'd think that if you buy something and you've got a 30-day money-back guarantee, then you feel safer about your decision. But what he actually says is if you've got the option to change your mind, you're always going to be assessing, was, was this the right choice? Should I take it back? You're constantly making more and more choices rather than just shut the door, make a decision, choose once, and then your brain sort of takes over and rationalizes why it was a good choice. The third piece of advice from Baz is we should be satisfying more and maximizing less. And he characterizes the two different characters here as the maximizer versus the satisficer. So basically, the maximizer, they just go out and they just want the absolute best. They're basically perfectionists making sure every single decision is the absolute 100% most optimal one they could ever have made. Whereas the satisficer, they want something that's just good enough. They've got a range of criteria that they want to meet. Once they find an option that meets their criteria that gives them exactly what they want, they choose that one. They don't worry that something might be 5% better if they go to the next store. They might find it a little bit cheaper. That will be maximizing. Satisficing means once you're satisfied, you make the decision and stop there. Mm, so back to the Google Maps analogy, 
to basically cop the the extra three minutes, cop the extra one to two percent less optimality. Is that a word? I don't know. It is it now. <laughs> less optimality in your decision, but you're going to suffer less from the paradox of choice philosophy and the regret and the opportunity cost. Yeah, I guess to take the Google Maps further, you want to get from point A to point B by a given time. If the main route gets you there on time, then just go for it rather than trying to find the sneaky back streets that would give you the best time that would shave off 90 seconds off your trip. So we all maximize in some areas, like whether you're a music aficionado, whether you're picking books to read or whether you're deciding which phone to buy, there's some area where you maximize, but for everything else, you should be a satisficer. You should realize that once something meets your goals, don't go out there and look for the very best. Save yourself the heartache, save yourself all those additional costs of time of searching and just be happy with the thing that you choose. 